Last month, action movie star Bruce Willis hit the headlines. All right, we're going to be in this hour with the latest on the health of actor Bruce Willis. A lot of people talking about this. Shocking news out of Hollywood today as we learn that Bruce... Now the star is facing a real-life challenge. His family says... The actor's family announced through Instagram that Willis would be stepping away from his career because he'd been experiencing some health issues. They said that Willis, who is now 67, had been diagnosed with a condition called aphasia. It's a condition that affects the brain, essentially attacking a person's ability to communicate. The news of his retirement brings to an end his more than three-decade-long career, which firmly established him as a member of the 80s and 90s Hollywood lineup of brooding action heroes. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. So how did Willis become such a superstar? And what is it about his style that endeared directors and audiences to keep coming back to him for leading roles? I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, the Bruce Willis story. Donald Clark is the chief film correspondent with the Irish Times. Donald, you've been writing about movies and their movie stars for years now. Can you remember when you first heard the name Bruce Willis? Well, I would imagine, like, well, I would be certain, in fact, like most of the people, it was when he arrived on Moonlighting in the mid to late 1980s, uh, which I don't remember watching all that much. I think at that stage I wasn't watching much television that I sort of just left university, was bumping about London and um, uh, uh, wasn't at home many evenings watching television. I can remember a conversation I heard about him when I was sitting in the theatre and... There was two girls behind me who were already Bruce Willis fans. This would be just pre-Die Hard. So he was then a television star. And I can remember them talking about how he'd become a sex symbol. And the thing which was a great note to them was they were saying, like, and what's most unusual, he's got a really high, high hairline, which they meant he was bald. Um, and so that, for, for myself at that stage, like being a man in his 20s, already was having problems with a high hairline. Um, I thought that was quite encouraging about this Bruce Willis guy, who I wasn't really very sure about yet, in the sense I didn't quite know who he was. I mean, watched a few episodes. But that was about it. And then... Uh, obviously, he made a massive jump up two or three years later when he appeared in Die Hard and managed to jump to full movie stardom, which was when he really registered in my brain. But let's start by going right back to the start with Bruce Willis. What do we know about his childhood? Where did he grow up and, and what did his parents do? Well, he's from that generation, which you come across with actors, well, writers, all kinds of performers, um, uh, from the army brat generation. That's to say, that was a time in the fifties, uh, um, early sixties, when there was huge U.S. military presence in Europe, and a lot of people you, you'll be surprised to learn from that generation were uh, born. Uh, in Europe. He was born in Germany. Uh, Martin Lawrence, for example, was also born in Germany. Uh, Amy Adams, if I remember correctly, uh, her family were a military family. They were born in Italy. And he's a solidly working class background. Not all that unusual for an actor, it should be said. I mean, that, um, his dad, after leaving the army, moved back to New Jersey. He was a, a proud New Jersey guy. I th- I, he described himself, I think, quite proudly as being from a long line of blue-collar people. Uh, his mum worked in a bank. His dad did a whole bunch of jobs. He's a welder. He was a master mechanic. He was a factory worker. And I think I think Jersey is one of those 
definitive working class locales in the United States. I mean, clearly it's full of many, many very well, wealthy people. But I think if you're working class from New Jersey, you feel particularly working class. I think not least because obviously you are growing up within spitting distance of New York City. Um, and you, you can quite happily um, cultivate a chip on your shoulder as a result of that. But Bruce Willis, he didn't go directly into acting. He took a more unconventional route. What kind of jobs did he have before he got into show business? As I understand it, then he did act a bit in school, but he didn't come from the kind of background where he would naturally kind of, like Meryl Streep, kind of nudge towards Juilliard. So I think he he was knocking around for quite a while, we realised, of course. I mean, he's in his, what, mid to late 60s now, and he didn't become a star until um, the mid-1980s. So there was a good sort of 10 years of relative obscurity there. It seems like he was kind of making some kind of effort to be an actor, but he really wasn't a proper working actor until he didn't moonlighting. So he was a security guard um, at a nuclear power plant. He was a professional driver at various stages, uh, drove um, crew workers at the DuPont factory uh, in New Jersey. He was famously, and um, I, I see no reason not to believe this, was a private investigator for a while, which obviously fitted in neatly with stuff <laughs> that he did later. I mean, in Moonlighting, obviously, and then The Last Boy Scout and so forth. I mean, that was sort of the the uh, ideal job for somebody he was moving into, the sort of films he was moving into. Um, he did study, do a bit of um, training. Um, I believe he was in the, the drama program at uh, Montclair University and uh, appeared in Captain Hot Tin Roof. And he had done a little bit of um, theatre here and there before the call for Moonlighting came. Uh, he'd um, done a play in New York City. Um, he, he had, had a, a smallish role in Miami Vice, which is coming up at that stage. So there were little things pottering around here and there before he landed with a boom. But his first big break, as you mentioned, was the TV show Moonlighting, alongside Sybil Shepherd. Men's room. I am not a sexist. Not only are you a sexist, but you are the sexiest sexist it has ever been my good fortune to satirize. Satirize? Satirize, scrutinize, fantasize, etc., etc., etc. What do we know about what the critics said about him at that point? Well, I can remember, I mean, at that stage, you weren't examined as closely as you are now in television. And now, if you were in a series like Moonlighting, there would be a thousand blogs analysing every episode um, and teasing every detail of every episode to death uh, on a weekly basis, um, not to mention the whole series of entertainment reviews. So I don't think there was really that much examination of the phenomenon of Bruce Willis, um, not least because he came, as we say, out of left field with, with, and no one quite knew what was, what, what, uh, who he was when he hit. Um, I mean, it was... It is, a real gamble on the part of the producers to put him in the lead role. He was playing opposite Sybil Shepherd, um, who'd been around in movies for, you know, 20 years at that stage. Um, uh, so it was a real gamble to put this total unknown and this total unknown who wasn't, who wasn't immediately, who wasn't, it wasn't immediately apparent where his glamour was coming from when you had a first look at him. It was never, it should be said, it was never an enormous hit. Uh, Moonlighting. It was very, very well received by, you're asking about the critics, the show itself was very well received by the critics. It landed with the Emmys and so forth. It was a, a success to, a success to steam, to be pompous about it, as much as it was um, uh, a huge rating success. But um, it did do wonders for him and it made him a, a name, which obviously he built on more successfully than most TV stars of that era did. 
And he was one of the few actors in the 80s and the 90s that successfully made the jump from series TV to film. How did he do that? Yeah, that's interesting. Now, we're, we're sort of well out of that era now. Um, uh, at that stage, it was regarded as once TV was a backwater. And it, was, it wasn't just the fact that it was difficult to graduate from television to what was, I, I'm putting everything in the verdict of commas here, to what was seen as the more exalted world of movies. It was, if you kind of went back into television after you'd been in films, that was it. That's that is sort of gone now. We've sort of forgotten about that. We're totally relaxed about the fact that, for example, Nicole Kidman will go and do Big Little Lies. You know, when when Nicole Kidman did Big Little Lies, nobody wrote, "Oh no, what's happened to Nicole Kidman's career? She's on the, <laughs> you know, she's crashing and burning. She's doing telly." Um, but back then there was that division. The best example before him of an actor who made the jump from a successful television series to genuine movie stardom was Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood had to do that in a very unconventional manner. Clint Eastwood had to go through these strange European westerns um, that were being uh, produced by Italians and shot in Spain in the 1960s. Initially, were regarded as sort of a joke. We forget the phrase spaghetti western was originally regarded as an insult. So Clint had to do that. I mean, after being hit in Rawhide in the 1950s, the TV series, he had to manoeuvre his way through this peculiar backwater to get himself uh, um, into proper, proper movie stardom. So, which is a long-winded way of saying at that stage it was a hard thing to do. So Willis did break ground in that sense. He His first um, high-profile movie was a comedy called Blind Date, which was not a hit um, in 87. Um, but in 88, he made Die Hard, and that was that. I mean, overnight, he went from being a successful TV star to being one of the signature uh, movie stars of the late 80s and early 1990s. And Deservedly so. When that film really holds up, I can remember, um, I saw it. I was lucky enough at that stage, uh, to be living in New York. I say lucky enough because that, those are the days when, um, films took six months to get from the United States to, um, to, uh, to Britain. So, uh, and it landed with a bang. I mean, everyone was saying, you've got to go and see this film about the guy from Moonlighting in a skyscraper. Uh, and it worked because it was a really well directed film. It worked because, um, uh, it had Alan Rickman. Um, breaking through uh, as an excellent baddie. It had really ingeniously staged uh, action sequences. And it worked because um, because Bruce Willis was terrifically well cast. He had that thing where he was charming, cheeky, and also, I think, the fact that he was kind of annoying. There's always been a kind of niggly annoying thing about Bruce Willis, which is mostly deliberate. Uh, and I think in this case that worked very well. There's that scene I remember where... Um, Bonnie Bedelia, at some point, um, the, the, the terrorists are just being driven bonkers by this guy who's somewhere in the building and they can't track him down. Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. A pain in the ass. And she sees them kind of like flinging stuff about the office and raging the that's John McClane. Only John McClane makes people that angry. And that was something that Bruce Willis did very well. That slightly niggling quality that he got at you and irritated you in a way that he intended to do. What about his talents, Donald, as an actor? I mean, how good was he really outside being that muscly action man figure? Admittedly, I personally love his character in Pulp Fiction, but weren't a lot of his characters quite samey? Yeah, but I mean, that's, that is a classic Hollywood route. I mean, you could say the same of Cary Grant or John Wayne. I'm not suggesting he's the level of Cary Grant, but it was the, the trick is to find yourself uh, an area in which to manoeuvre. 
and if you're okay, you're enclosed by that area, but if you can be creative and maneuver within that area um, uh, to winning a fact, then you can last for decades. I mean, he was uh, essentially a, you know, a, a, essentially a working class guy who uh, had to struggle to get through with the various situations he was in, but nonetheless retained a kind of superhuman confidence um, all the way through. Now, if you can create a persona like that, then you're a maid in Hollywood. And I mean, and you can become a legend. I mean, we have a few of them around. I suppose from somebody from a little bit younger, um, uh, well, 10, 15 years younger, uh, Keanu Reeves is a good example now of somebody who um, does not have an enormous range, has maybe a one and a half octave range. But within his one and a half octave range, he's terrific. Um, so to answer, that's a long-winded way of saying that I think he is terrific within the confines of a particular class of Hollywood movie star, I think he lives up to the challenges that are offered by that um, uh, very well and belongs in the list of the most influential and uh, uh, most charismatic uh, movie stars of the 80s and 90s. And that was, again, as we're saying, a very specific time. Willis was, after the hugeness of Schwarzenegger and the the hugeness of, of Stallone as well, you needed somebody who's a little bit more downbeat as a to compensate for those two, and he did that. He fitted that role quite neatly. What well, for you, Donald? Are are Bruce Willis's standout roles during his career? Well, I suppose when you ask that question, you always look for the one that's not like the rest. You look like for the apple and the bunch of oranges, don't you? Um, and I would single out the Sixth Sense. Again, he is working within a limited um, octave range in the sixth sense, but he's terrific in that um, and genuinely poignant. I mean, he has that, I always think the sixth sense is, um, apologies to anybody here who does not know what happens at the end of the sixth sense, but there really can't be anyone out there. (laughs) But I've always felt that film has the most honest twist of the most celebrated twists in Hollywood because Haley Joel Osment says it to Bruce Willis several times. He looks at Bruce Willis in the face and says, I see dead people. And Bruce says, when? And looks at Bruce again and says, all the time. And uh, I think the, the role required a kind of stillness so that at the end you could look back and say, oh, I can see he wasn't quite among the living. I see dead people. In your dreams? While you're awake? Dead people like in graves and coffins? Walking around like regular people. If you've tried Googling the term aphasia in the past fortnight, your screen will have automatically filled up with dozens of articles about Bruce Willis and his career. But aphasia is not unique to Willis and it is not a new condition. An estimated 350,000 people in the UK have aphasia, while the Aphasia Ireland group says around 50,000 people in this country suffer from the condition. And yet, many of us know almost nothing about this neurological disorder. Jenny Crinian is a professor of cognitive neuroscience and a consultant speech therapist. Jenny, we've been hearing a lot more about aphasia in the news over the past couple of weeks since it was announced that Bruce Willis is stepping down from his decades-long movie career. But can you explain what exactly is aphasia? 
So aphasia is an acquired communication disorder, which means that it's something that happens during the course of life instead of being present from birth. Um, so it affects a person's ability to process language. And by that, it means it can be speaking, listening, reading, writing. Aphasia is most commonly caused by a brain injury, such as stroke or head trauma. So that could be a traumatic brain injury, so like a car crash, head injury. Most forms of aphasia that come on suddenly are due to an acquired brain injury. Um, and then the progressive neurological form of aphasia comes on much slower and worsens over months or years. And how does aphasia manifest itself? What would lead to a person suspecting that they could be developing this? It presents differently depending on the type of aphasia or the severity. And that normally is depending upon which part of the brain has been affected. So a very mild form, the person who is speaking, it may feel different to them. So they may find that it's harder to find the right words. So they know what they want to say, but it's just harder for it to come out. So a bit more like a tip of the tongue that we all get every now and then, but happening a lot more often. So that could be very mild and only the speaker can feel it. And the other person doesn't really notice. But in other cases, it's much more immediately obvious. So suddenly something happens, their speech goes funny. They have trouble either getting the words out or understanding what somebody's saying to them, or if they try to write and it all comes out wrong or they just can't. Um, so it can affect any of those domains. So input language, so understanding or reading for meaning or output, which is speaking or writing. What about treatments for aphasia? What would a person who is diagnosed with this have to do to kind of maintain it moving forward? Well, it's not even just about maintaining, actually. So it depends on the reason why it's happened. So it, people can progress. So it's, people can recover from aphasia. So it can be a transient disease. So if after a stroke, you can have acute aphasia, which can resolve over time. Or if you have, say, a brain injury that causes some brain swelling, when the swelling goes down, that also could resolve. So the treatment that you would do in all cases is speech and language therapy. So a behavioral intervention. So there's obviously two levels of treatment. The medical treatment as how do you treat the brain disease to help resolve that. If you can treat that and reverse it, then you'll reverse the language symptoms. But if you can't reverse the brain damage, can you then help the patient who is having problems speaking recover their speech so they can then functionally communicate again? And the best way to do that is behavioural interventions. Can I just finally ask, you mentioned there that some people are able to fully recover from aphasia with the right kinds of support, but does that change as a person gets older? For instance, Bruce Willis is in his late 60s. So if someone in their late 60s develops this condition, is it less likely that they would regain full speech or is it just it depends on each separate case yeah no age is not a predictor for response to speech and language therapy um what is the biggest predictor is the brain damage so it depends on what is the reason for the brain damage so if it's a stroke then age has got no relevance to predicting somebody's uh, recovery potential what is the most is what part of the brain has been damaged and then what about the potential for us to help modify and integrate the rest of the brain that hasn't been damaged to help compensate and help the patient relearn again. So 
you know, for me, I see people who are 90, I see people who are 18. The treatment I will give will depend purely on what has caused the brain damage, what level of difficulty they've got, whether it's speaking or listening or reading or writing, and then I'll devise the treatment to optimize it for them. So everyone has the potential, but it does, you're right, it does need to be tailored according to their individual needs. But age is not, it's too crude and not sensitive a measure. The brain damage is the key. Professor Jenny Crinian, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Donald, after a few decades of real success, Bruce Willis's career in recent years hasn't exactly ended on a high note. What can you tell us about the films he's been involved in over the past few years? It's a strange story. Um, there's someone that will tread carefully, but a lot of us noted. I mean, well, first, is a lot of us didn't notice because... Basically, he got inveigled into, or inveigled himself into, who knows, into working on a huge series of um, what we used to call um, straight-to-video, we now call straight-to-streaming productions. I guess um, this phenomenon came to people's attention because we were, we were as film critics, we were reviewing films that were streaming, which we wouldn't have done previously because, you know, the cinema was shut down and streaming, streaming became... Uh, more important than it had been. Um, they reckon they shot 22 films in the last four years, almost, well, I'd say almost none of which you're likely to have heard of. Relatively cheap thrillers in which he di- didn't do very much. And when people looked back, I, I mean, I, I feel sort of slightly, slightly uncomfortable about this because I reviewed one of them. Uh, it was called Survive the Game in the States. It was retitled something else here. I can't remember what it was, which was terrible. Um, and I noted the fact that uh, how, how peculiar Bruce Willis's presence was in that he spent much of the time in a shot on his own. He was sitting at a table with, with one shot and in conversations they'd cut from his one shot, somebody else's one shot. And you got the sense he'd filmed he'd filmed this entire part relatively quickly on his own for the large part and it seems i can't say for certain that that was the case but it seems from reports from the la times that is the kind of thing that was happening um uh, the the la times report suggested that a number of people that they talked to uh, had noted that he had not seemed aware of his surroundings um and he had not seemed alert and there was talk about his um, representatives having his roles cut down um, so that he was doing as little as possible once he got on set. It seems to have come down reasonably quickly in that it's not that long ago that um, that he was in films like Glass, the M. Night Shyamalan film. Uh, so the last three or four years, that seems to have like closed in on him relatively quickly, if what these people are saying is accurate, which obviously we can't say. But it's quite an upsetting story, if that is true. And if it is true, what does it tell us about the American movie industry's desire to perhaps overlook health struggles in favour of getting a star on the screen? I think it's hard for us to be precise with what went on there. I would uh, say that I wouldn't want to say too much about um, how we ended up making those films. But what it, it does say something interesting, I think, about one of the things that we've written about, I've written about a fair bit over the last 10, 15 years, particularly the last 5 or 10 years, is the apparent death of the movie star. What I mean by that is that we went through a period where increasingly few movie stars could open films the way that they used to 20 years ago. The economics of this are bizarre. We were in a conversation 20 years ago about, and they would quite rightly point out, how can uh, Tom Cruise or whoever it is 
what he does be worth paying 13, 15 million, it's more than that, I think, at one stage, for appearing in one film. And the answer to that, one answer to that question is, of course it's not worth that. Of course it's not worth paying an actor 13 million, paying an actor, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times what a nurse would get for, you know, a day's work for doing what they do. But in, in one area, it does make sense, you know, would you make that amount of money more for a Mission Impossible film starring Tom Cruise than one that didn't star Tom Cruise, one that stars somebody entirely unknown? Well, you would. You'd make a lot more than that. So in that sense, that money was, sens- was a sensible investment. What's happened over the last 10, 15 years is that notion of a movie star opening a film has gradually vanished, and what sells now is uh, intellectual property, is IP. That is to say, people go and go to see Spider-Man they don't go to see Tom Holland. They may go to see Tom, they might like Tom Holland, no dissing to Tom Holland, but they go to see Spider-Man, they go to see Batman. The comic book characters, the intellectual property is what flogs films. And there is nobody now who can, uh, whose name on the poster will get people in to ring up box office of 100, 200, 300 million. Um, now, one end of the market, it does still matter. And this is one thing we learned about this interesting business of Bruce Willis making these relatively low-budget films. The LA Times report suggests he was being paid $2 million for a number of these of these projects. Um, now, that's less than he would have got some time ago, but it's still an awful, a large amount of money. And it's a large amount of money for a relatively low-budgeted film to pay out. And it suggests that the movie, movie stars of his generation, recognisable names, can do one thing. They can still get films made. And you'll see this amongst uh, low-budget films in the UK and Ireland, is that once you get a name someone recognises, you gain a kind of respectability and you can get more more financing and get the film made. So apparently it is still worth your while paying a huge portion of uh, your budget on a low-budget film towards a recognisable name because it gets the film made. And then down the line, um, you'll be able to flog it to streaming services you'll be able to rent that they'll be able to rent it out that helps that still happen so in one sense the one aspect of this apparently sad story demonstrates one interesting aspect which is the movie star is not quite dead yet donald clark thanks so much for your time thank you that's all for today. My thanks to our guests donald clark and professor jenny crinian today's episode was produced by suzanne brennan in the news we'll be back on monday <laughs>